Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Did you know that roughly 60% of what you put on your skin is absorbed? And did you know that most skincare is full of harmful chemicals like parabens, sulfates, and phthalates that have been linked to numerous health problems? Not to worry, because the folks at Orzen Alps did all the work for you. Through rigorous testing and consumer studies, they have created a line of SPF, skin, hair, and body care that is both clean and effective. They just recently launched 100% mineral sunscreen lotion with SPF 30 to go along with their SPF 30 100% mineral face moisturizer. Both use non-nano zinc to blend easily on the skin and avoid white cast. Plus hyaluronic acid and antioxidant-rich alpine caribou moss, their signature ingredient, make their sunscreens extra hydrating. Head over to orzenalps.com and get 15% off your purchase of any Orzen Alps products. Just use code JUSTINGREDIENTS15. That's orzenalps.com and use offer code JUSTINGREDIENTS15 for 15% off your purchase of any Orzen Alps products. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She is the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am really excited today to have Lily Nichols here with us. Like you heard, she's a registered dietitian. And I am excited to talk to you about prenatal nutrition and postpartum and all of those things. And I have a lot of young moms that follow and listen. So thank you so much for being here today. Appreciate the invite. Will you tell my listeners just a little bit about yourself, your background, and maybe why you got started with prenatal nutrition? Sure. So I'll, I'll start from like dietetics education and beyond. So I don't go way, way back in history, but I've, since I've become a dietitian, I have worked most of my career in the realm of prenatal nutrition from many different angles from, uh, you know, one-on-one client angle, both private practice and working under a perinatologist to public policy level with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program um, to consulting on various research studies. And of course, um, my two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And I kind of fell into the prenatal scene a little bit by accident in, in terms of getting into gestational diabetes. And then once I learned just how vastly important it is to have well-managed blood sugar during pregnancy and how that can impact a child's future health and metabolism and risk for type 2 diabetes later in life, that's what really made me um, passionate and want to stay in this field. You can really make a massive difference. It's like two birds with one stone uh, situation. You help mom out and you also help her uh, future child. You can really make a massive impact. And my work has kind of moved in the direction of um, looking critically at the guidelines for pregnancy, for gestational diabetes, 
and also like the lack of guidelines for postpartum um, and, and pointing out where we can do better, um, where there is, you know, gaps in the guidelines that research has filled in in the last 20 plus years that simply haven't made it into policy yet. And rather than trying to um, go from the, you know, bureaucratic angle, I've been in that space before. It's like pulling teeth, trying to get anything changed. I prefer to go direct to, to the public, direct to consumer and clinicians and educate them on what, what this new research has found. You know, hey, we learned this about choline. Let's implement it um, and let's, let's elicit change in that way. That's awesome. I love that you are like, okay, it takes years to change anything with the FDA or with guidelines. So I'm just going to go educate on my own. That is awesome because it does take years and years for guidelines to change. And I think that's really important for listeners to understand. So let's just start at the beginning with prenatal nutrition. So how should nutrition or diet change once someone is pregnant? Well, it kind of depends on what stage in pregnancy you're you're thinking about this. Technically, well-balanced, healthy diet from preconception all the way forward through pregnancy and postpartum is, is ideal because a healthy preconception diet really sets the stage for a healthy early pregnancy experience and that transition. Um, but depending on like, you know, where you are in pregnancy when you're starting to think about this. Uh, you know, first trimester is a bit challenging because there's often nausea and food aversions and other things cropping up that it might be a tricky time to really try to do a massive overhaul in your diet. But once those symptoms have calmed down a little bit, which they often do in the second trimester, or at least the second half of pregnancy, some of the major things you want to focus on are getting a sufficient amount of protein. Your protein needs do go up during pregnancy. And as of 2015, we actually had the first ever study done on pregnant women to assess protein requirements. That's a shocker to people because wow. they think that these guidelines are all based on studies on pregnant women. And actually most of them aren't, or rather most of these guidelines are based on pregnant women. And most of them, we simply didn't have the data, but that study revealed that our guidelines for protein requirements in pregnancy are set far too low such as like in later pregnancy, they're set 73% lower than they should be. So oh, wow. you really want to focus on getting a sufficient amount of protein, particularly in the latter half of pregnancy. That's a big one. And that's one that if you fill that need, um, because protein foods tend to be very rich in micronutrients, you also fill a lot of other nutritional gaps very easily if you just hit the protein mark. So to give you an example, protein needs are dependent upon a person's body weight. So it's hard to give like a blanket level that applies to everybody. You know, if you're a very small person, you're like five, one, and you weigh about a hundred pounds, you're going to need less protein than someone who's 150 pounds or 200 pounds or right. So we have to keep that into consideration, but to use just a person who's like 150 pounds in the first half of pregnancy, I would aim for about 80 grams of protein per day. While in the latter half of pregnancy, aiming for a minimum of hundred grams of protein or more. Um, if you are physically very active, of course, you're going to need beyond that 100 gram mark, but that just gives you a ballpark um, to kind of put that into play. When you look at those levels and those are reflective of that study I was referring to two thirds of pregnant women in the U S do not hit those marks. So, oh, wow. That's um, surprising. It is. We think that Americans eat a ton of protein and actually protein intake is kind of declining in recent years as everybody shifts to uh, plant-based eating. So 
Protein's a big one. I would also say plenty of fresh food produce, right? Fruits and vegetables have a lot of different micronutrients that are important um, for pregnancy health. Those would be probably some of the biggest two that I would hit on. But as for like, are your needs in pregnancy significantly different than outside of pregnancy? Like, is there a difference in the definition of a healthy diet for this life stage versus another life stage? Not really. It's just as pregnancy goes on, you're going to need a a little bit of extra food, the equivalent of maybe an extra small meal or snack per day, but otherwise the same balanced healthy eating pattern that you had pre-pregnancy can continue during pregnancy and and also postpartum. We don't have to overcomplicate it. Okay. That's good to know. So I have a couple of questions though for you. So when you say a little small meal or a little snack, is there a certain amount of calories that they should aim for when pregnant or not necessarily? So there's all sorts of fancy calculations to try to quantify how much the calorie uh, requirements change during pregnancy. And the most common estimate is about 300 extra calories per day. Some guidelines as you get into some of the final weeks of pregnancy suggest an extra 500 calories per day. So just slowly ramping up to that level. There have been studies though, showing that because a lot of times women decrease their activity level naturally during pregnancy, they're, they're sort of like saving that (laughs) they're saving those calories too. So how much do you need to ingest more could be as little as like 70 extra calories per day. So I would say aim for about 300. That's sort of middle ballpark. Okay. But mostly go by your hunger and fullness cues. Um, I'm personally a big fan of mindful eating rather than tracking things religiously. I mean, I think sometimes getting a ballpark on your protein is helpful because I find so many under eat for that particular um, macronutrient. But as far as tracking calories, you know, your body is not a calculator. (laughs) We're not um, this well-oiled machine where we're going to need the exact same amount of calories one day versus another. So maybe you exercise three days a week and those days you need the extra three to 500 calories per day. And maybe the other days when you're not as active, you don't need quite as much. Right. Right. Um, But I think it is helpful to talk about this though, because there is that concept of eating for two. And some people think that means like eating double the amount of food. You really don't have to stuff yourself silly for no reason. Like if you're hungry, certainly you always have permission to eat, but it's probably not going to be double portions of every single meal. That's probably going to be too much. That's good to know. And I am all for not counting the calories either, unless there's a certain reason that you need to when pregnant, because when I was pregnant, there were some days that I couldn't hardly eat anything because I was feeling so sick. And then other days that I was famished. And so I had to really listen to my body and I figured if I was famished, then the baby needed some, you know, nutrients or food as well. And so like you said, I think it's really important to listen to your body as well. Okay, so I have a question about protein. You said 80 to 100 grams of protein. And to me, that actually still seems low. I know in the fitness world, a lot of people say eat one gram of protein for each pound you weigh. So yep. and that would be 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. So yeah, let's dig into that study a little more. So that study was, they set an EAR, an estimated average requirement versus an RDA level. (laughs) We're going to get into the weeds a little bit here. So hold your horses. But 
There are different criteria for different like levels of dietary guidelines. An EAR is set to meet about 50% of the population's needs. They're always going to be set lower than the recommended daily allowance or the RDA, which is set to meet 97 to 98% of the population's needs. So they were specifically looking at the EAR level for pregnancy. What they found from their study was that the EAR should actually be set for the first trimester at 1.22 grams per kilogram and for later pregnancy at 1.5 grams per kilogram, um, 1.52 grams per kilogram, I believe. Now you can extrapolate that up to an RDA and then you're going to be getting closer to some of the levels that you're suggesting. I believe if you run the calculation for late pregnancy, you're looking at about 1.8 or 1.9 grams per kilogram. So that's pretty close to the 2.2 grams per kilogram, which would be one one gram per pound of body weight that is common in the fitness world. I I really use these as a proxy for minimum. And that's why I'm usually pretty clear about using minimum goal. Um, Because of course, people who are more physically active and if you have the appetite for it, you can clearly do more protein. I, I have never had a, a client overeat protein. It's a, it's a limiting nutrient. Even when you have studies where they try to give a diet that's like 40% protein, the participants end up eating like 26% of their calories as protein just naturally because it is so filling that you right. cannot exceed it. <laughs> it's like impossible. The only time when I think people run into trouble is if they're doing like all these isolated protein powders, or they can test out really high protein diets in rodents. They just formulate super high protein rat chow, for example. And then you can end up in like issues with that, but that'll get, that gives you a little bit more background on where those numbers came from and um, you know, how you can kind of have wiggle room to move upward towards more of what would be, I guess you could call the optimal RDA if they were ever to recalculate this and rewrite the guidelines. That's good to know. Thank you for explaining that. But let's talk a little bit more about protein, about sources of protein, because I know I actually just had a friend recently say, I don't think I got enough protein when I was pregnant because I was afraid to eat things like deli meat or tuna or certain fish. And so are there foods, especially protein food sources that pregnant women should stay away from? So yes and no. This is one of the areas that becomes very controversial, but there's, there's a lot of these conventional uh, foods to avoid lists that will tell you to avoid a variety of foods based on their risk of being contaminated with bacteria or other pathogens that could give you foodborne illness or some kind of infection. So common reasons are likelihood of it being contaminated with salmonella or listeria And yes, having those infections can be risky to the pregnancy as a whole. However, when you start to really look into it, the prevalence of those infections is very low, or the chances that these common foods on these lists are actually contaminated with those bacteria is also pretty low. So to give you an example, common one is undercooked eggs, eggs with runny yolks. They tell you not to consume undercooked eggs during pregnancy due to the risk of salmonella. They found that the chances that an egg is contaminated with salmonella is anywhere from one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs. Mm. So very, very rare. Um, And infection with salmonella during pregnancy is also very, very, very rare, like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. 
So you do the math on how many eggs you eat, you know, per week and, and what your chances are. It's pretty slim. Now you could, you know, eat on the safe side if it's, if it feels best for you and keeps your anxiety at bay, like only eat eggs that are fully cooked. Uh, so the yolk is completely solid nutritionally. That's still, you know, an excellent source of protein and other micronutrients. But for those who find that really off-putting, and I happen to be one of those people, like other than the occasional scrambled eggs, I usually like my eggs over medium, then that would mean me eliminating a really nutritious food from my diet and eliminating the number one food source of choline from my diet, which is a vital nutrient for fetal brain development, for example. So I think you have to look at the risk benefit on these and decide for yourself what you're comfortable with. I do devote like a whole section, actually like really a whole chapter, chapter four of Real Food for Pregnancy to this, to give you some of these statistics and help you kind of sort through it for yourself because your decision might be different from somebody else. And I really can't guarantee that any food is safe or unsafe, you know, like just back to the eggs, they eggs account for 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the U S but fresh fruits and vegetables account for 46% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the U S and nobody is telling you not to eat salads or not to eat fresh fruit during pregnancy. So just to play devil's advocate, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you whether something's contaminated or not, but I can tell you your relative chances via statistics. And then you can decide uh, what you want to do with that information. That's so interesting. So are there really not any foods that pregnant people need to avoid? The one that I do believe is safest to avoid would be raw shellfish. So like raw oysters. Um, I say this with a caveat because I know many friends who still consume raw oysters during pregnancy. So if you're at a place where you know they're like, you know, freshly shucked and you're in like a oyster region like the Pacific Northwest, maybe that's going to be a different risk benefit for you. But as a whole, from the like nationwide statistics, 75% of seafood associated foodborne illness outbreaks come from raw shellfish, raw and undercooked mm. shellfish. So that would be one where I believe the it, it is a risky one in terms of food poisoning. Um, and so you might want to do those shellfish cooked instead. Shellfish are crazy nutrient dense. So I highly recommend consuming them. But unless you really know your source, they are they are a little bit sketchy. Oh, that's so good to know. I didn't realize that it was due to foodborne illnesses or contamination. I thought it was like actually doing something to the baby. So that's uh, not the case yeah. at all. Well, I, I mean, if you have a really serious foodborne illness infection, like you have listeriosis, there is a chance of, of miscarriage from that, right? right? right. Um, it's very, very low. Like the rates of listeriosis in pregnant women is like, I believe it's 0.003%. It's really low, but it's still like a risk factor. Right. Um, that said, if you have a healthy microbiome, usually your body is able to, you know, not actually get sick, even if the food is contaminated or, you know, you get over it quickly. I mean, this is not from food, but during my first pregnancy, I had, was babysitting for a toddler, a friend's toddler who went to daycare and they didn't know, but that day there had been a norovirus like outbreak at the daycare. And I got norovirus during my pregnancy, not from food, from being in contact with this 
sick toddler. And, you know, you get over it in 24 hours and you're fine. Um, but there is that small chance that these infections could lead to more serious complications. So I think that's what leads to the very like stringent, like kind of paternalistic guidelines on like never eat this food. But on the flip side, there's also been research showing that the more compliant women are with these guidelines, especially the listeria ones, because that that knocks off like a lot of different kinds of meat, pate, soft cheeses, raw cheeses, and those sorts of things. They found that they're actually at much greater risk for nutrient deficiencies. And that's the major elephant in the room that um, a lot of people don't consider. So I don't have a crystal ball, right? I don't know what's contaminated or not, but you should be just as careful with food handling with fruits and vegetables as you should with any of these foods that are typically on the foods to avoid list. I'm glad that you explained all of that because I think there's actually a really big fear out there for pregnant women as to what foods they can't eat because every single day without fail, I get at least two or three DMs from people saying, is your protein powder safe to eat while pregnant? And I'm like, it's all real foods. I have nothing artificial in there. Like, it's amazing. It's full of great nutrients. So, and it always surprises me that they are asking if they can eat this. And I'm thinking, are you then asking about the Oreos and the Fruity Pebbles too? Like, You should see the DMs that I get. It's like, can I eat grapes? Can I eat pineapple? Can I eat peanut butter? Can I eat? And really there's the, the actual list of things that are actually a concern is very small really very, very small. And, and really for that list, it's like a raw shellfish that you don't know the sourcing and handling of. Like if you live in an inland area, for example, I would not trust raw shellfish. If you live right on the coast, maybe that's a different conversation. You know, you're like oyster guy, right? right. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of focus on foods to avoid versus what to emphasize. And I think that is a major downside of our guidelines. I mean, even for me, I remember at my first prenatal appointment, I didn't get any information about nutrition, but I did get this pamphlet of all of these different things to avoid. And it makes you very scared. It makes you really feel like, oh no, if I eat this thing, then something bad is going to happen to my baby. Right. really the major reason that anything is on there, again, as I said, is the foodborne illness stuff. And then there are some um, cautions on different types of fish to consume because some types of fish are high in mercury. So that is another consideration is like the, the contamination with heavy metals. But even that, that list is very short. It's like swordfish, king mackerel, tilefish, and shark, and then limit your tuna intake to no more than six ounces per week. You can get more specific than that if you want to, but those are the FDA guidelines. They still recommend the FDA guidelines, 12 ounces of seafood per week but people worry about fish and they take out all fish from their diet. Again, not considering the potential nutrient deficiencies that that can result from taking that out of your diet. So that just to, for completeness sake, to add that in there, there is also that, that mercury consideration. Okay. And I'm glad you said that because a lot of people I know cut out fish and I'm like, salmon especially is amazing for you and the baby. Like, why would you cut that out? You need to have that multiple times a week. So I'm glad you said that. But let's actually talk about nutrients, micronutrients that maybe are more necessary during pregnancy. Are there some? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a long list of nutrient needs that increase during pregnancy. 
you know, a couple ones are vitamin B12. That one increases during pregnancy, very important for infant's brain development. Iodine, likewise, also increases, important for infant's brain development. A lot of the reason these nutrients are on there is for infant brain development, just so you know. You have uh, choline, that one also increases, and that's one that really doesn't, hasn't gotten a lot of attention uh, mainstream. I'm always talking about it, but choline is sort of a B vitamin-like compound that impacts um, fetal brain development, uh, is one of the nutrients that can reduce the risk of neural tube defects, just like folate, also supports placental development, uh, lowers the risk of preeclampsia. And we now have like randomized controlled trials, really well-designed trials using higher dose supplementation of choline in pregnancy, showing benefits to baby's brain development. Um, They've now continued this study into age seven. So these kids were tested in toddlerhood and the mothers who consumed more than twice what the recommended amount of choline is per day currently, um, their babies scored better at all time points on their you know, brain development tests in infancy. And then they've followed them now through age seven, they continue to score better on things like attention span. So choline is a vital one that doesn't really uh, hit the airways much. That one, again, I mentioned eggs. That's one of the best sources. Liver is also an excellent source. Animal foods are a really good source. Beyond that, you're looking at pretty low concentrations in various plant foods um, and dairy products, but really your, your meat and particularly your egg yolks are, are the number one sources like eggs alone account for more than half of the choline that's consumed in the U S. So that's a big one. That's good to know. So is choline in prenatal vitamins or not necessarily? I wish it was. It's not, huh? (laughs) Choline is often not included in prenatal vitamins, or if it is, it's included in a very small amount. Part of that is that there's just not as much awareness around choline, although I have seen that shift in the last few years. Um, But it's also an expensive uh, ingredient, and it is also very bulky. So it takes up physically a lot of space in the capsule or tablet, necessitating more capsules in order to get a reasonable dosage of choline. So a lot of them, if they do include it, they include like pixie dust amounts to have it show up on the label and people would be like, oh good, it contains choline, but it contains like 10 milligrams and the recommended intake for pregnancy, even by the current very low standards is 450 milligrams, you know? So it's like, okay, that's helpful, but an egg gets you 120. So it's not that much. So people really need to get it through their food. And if you're plant-based, not eating animal products, that's a little tricky when you're pregnant. So choline is definitely a nutrient of concern for uh, vegetarians and particularly vegans or any vegetarians that don't consume eggs because other than eggs, yeah, you have like a little bit in dairy foods, but if you don't eat dairy foods and you're looking at like soy, broccoli, beans, peanut butter, shiitake mushrooms. But if you look at, if we use eggs as, as a proxy you would need maybe about four eggs to meet the choline requirements of pregnancy. That's four eggs a day. That would be a lot. I'm not that recommending is, everybody yeah. eats four eggs a day. But if you have like two eggs a day plus all these other foods, you can usually get up to that 450 milligram amount or even beyond. But if you take out eggs, it gets tricky because to get the amount of choline that's in a single egg, you'd need over like three cups of tofu 
you'd need four cups of broccoli or two cups of cooked beans or two cups of shiitake mushrooms or almost six tablespoons of peanut butter. So it's just such a large that is. volume of food to get to that amount of choline that often a supplement is helpful. So if it's not in your prenatal, and there are some prenatals that do contain sufficient amounts of choline, so check. But if it's not in, in your prenatal, then you can always add a choline supplement on the side. And some of those are vegan friendly. So there's sunflower lecithin, there's soy lecithin. I prefer sunflower if, if you have the option. There's also like isolated choline, like choline bitartrate, and that is vegan. Um, you'd have to look at the capsule, of course, but those would be good additions if you're not having eggs in the diet for whatever reason. Okay, that is so good to know. I have another nutrient, though, that I also want to talk about, and that's folate. Is folate doing a lot of the same things as choline? Folate does some of the same things as choline because it participates in this whole folate cycle and methylation cycle. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but some of these processes that are involved in like the very transcription of your baby's DNA, you know, they're fundamental, you know, uh, setting up of like transcribing their, their genetics, choline and folate are involved in those same pathways. So there's a little bit of overlap, but they are distinct and different nutrients. I refer to choline as like folate's long lost cousin for that reason. There is overlap, but they're, they're definitely different, different animals or different nutrients, so to speak. Okay. So that's actually good to know. And folate, I feel like is really pushed during pregnancy. Like we see it a lot in uh, prenatals, but let's actually talk about folate versus folic acid because some prenatals have folate, some prenatals have folic acid. So are they the same thing? Are they different? Should we be looking for one over the other? Well, to back up just a little bit on the choline part, the reason it gets less attention is that it is the most recent nutrient to be added to the list of essential nutrients. So prior to 1998, the assumption was that your body could make all the choline that it needs. It was discovered in the late 90s that that actually wasn't the case. So they added an adequate intake level for choline. But it's still, because it's newest kid on the block in nutrient land, it just hasn't had as much attention. Folate, on the other hand, has had a lot of attention because we've had research dating back to at least the early 90s showing a significant difference in the rates of things like neural tube defects in pregnancies from women who had low folate status, and they started manufacturing a synthetic form of folate called folic acid and supplementing with that and showing that that had an impact on rates of neural tube defects as well. And so part of the reason we hear so much about folate and folic acid is due to its impact on neural tube defects and the fact that the the closure of the neural tube, like what the, the defect you're trying to avoid, if this process goes off, goes on like correctly and the neural tube closes, this happens very, very early in pregnancy, like by week five or six. Oh. And so the emphasis is really on getting the whole population at a sufficient folate status via either supplementation pre-pregnancy or what we do like fortifying the food supply 
they fortify almost all refined grains in the US and at least 40 or 50 other countries around the world with folic acid to try to combat the population-wide folate deficiency to try to prevent neural tube defects. So that's, that's why folate gets so much attention. As for the difference between folate and folic acid, so folic acid is structurally and functionally different from the folates that naturally exist in food. In food, there's over 150 different types of folate, um, most of which is in the form of methylfolate. But folic acid is an isolated and synthetic form. It does not occur in nature. So it's only in our diets because it is fortified or or we're taking it in um, supplementally. The challenge is that folate is kind of an umbrella term. It encompasses both the naturally occurring folates, all 150 different types, um, as well as the synthetic folic acid. And so in the literature and in a lot of places, you see the terms used interchangeably. And you can use, it depends on the context, whether you can use which one, because folic acid is specific to that synthetic version. Um, whereas folate, as I said, can encompass like all of them. The controversy that's cropped up is that after the food supply became fortified in folic acid, a lot of people started eating too much folic acid. And that's because, you know, all of our refined grains are fortified with it. 58% of calories in the, in the average American diet is from ultra processed foods, which is a lot wow. of them white flour products. Yeah, I know. Is that shocking? Yeah, that's a lot. 60% of the diet is from ultra processed foods. It's crazy. So if you take in too much synthetic folic acid, it can actually interrupt folate metabolism in the body. Some people have challenges making use of folic acid. So their body has trouble converting it into a usable form. This is often due to a defect in an enzyme called MTHFR, which many people are familiar with now. It's gotten a lot of press. And so you can have a buildup of what they call unmetabolized folic acid in the body. And now we have studies showing that that might not be such a good thing. It could have impacts on baby's brain development, um, risk of neurodevelopmental problems such as autism. We really don't know the effects of unmetabolized folic acid because it simply wasn't a part of our human experience until they started synthesizing, manufacturing, and then widely fortifying the food supply with it. So my recommendation is to go with the type of folate that your body can process. And there's many prenatals on the market that are made with methylfolate. Um, It's also called 5-methyltetrahydrofolate or tetrahydrofolic acid, not to get confused with synthetic folic acid. But um, I do have an article on this on my site. If you look up folate or folic acid on my website, you'll pull up a very detailed article going through all of this. So you don't have to keep this all memorized in your brain right now, but that's what I would recommend. They have found that methylfolate increases folate status to the same degree or even quicker than folic acid. You don't have any risk of unmetabolized folic acid in your system Um, already, unless you completely cut out refined grains, everyone's still eating folic acid in, in their foods. And the average intake of folic acid from our foods is in women is about 300 milligrams per day. You know, you only need four to 600 milligrams of, of folate, um, to meet the needs of, of pregnancy. So 
uh, you know, already it's like, we were getting plenty of folic acid. Let's actually fortify with the type that your body can utilize. 95 to 98% of the folate in our body is found in the methylfolate form. And that includes what's in our red blood cells that includes fetal blood supply measured via cord blood. So it is the metabolically active uh, version with no downsides. So interesting. So I always really encourage people to look for a prenatal that has methylfolate in it or just folate because I personally don't do well with folic acid due to the MTHFR variant. And so I took a prenatal with folic acid and come to find out it probably wasn't the best thing for me to take because I have an issue with it. So it's just important for people to know their own bodies and their own health concerns. But with folate being the natural source, I always tell people to look for that in their prenatal. Absolutely. And also emphasizing folate rich foods as well, which nobody seems to talk about that, but you know, the folate that we ingest from our diet also counts. So, you know, some of our best sources are liver that surprises people because everybody hears leafy greens, but liver really tops the list. Um, Certain leafy greens are of course also high in folate. Spinach is one of the highest. Um, Other green vegetables like uh, asparagus and broccoli are really high in folate. Lots of your legumes and beans are really high in folate. So getting a wide, wide range of, of foods in your diet, both plant and animal also will, will get you folate as well. Right. Well, and I tell people all the time that folate actually is really good for mental health as well, not just pregnancy. So I'm always saying, throw that spinach in your smoothie. If you're making a smoothie, mm-hmm. just throw a handful in. You won't ever know. So, um, okay. Well, talking about a prenatal, are there certain things that women should look for in a prenatal? Do you recommend a prenatal? What are your thoughts? I do generally speaking, you know, I look at supplements as an insurance policy, basically, not as a replacement for a healthy diet, because we still need other things coming in from our diet as well. But it is really an insurance policy to make sure we're not too low in any one particular nutrient. It is actually surprisingly hard to hit all the marks for all the micronutrients every single day. And if you've ever logged your food intake in a free app, like chronometer is a great one or chronometer. Everybody says it differently. Um, but that one will actually log your micronutrient intake and you'll see it's kind of hard to like hit all the marks. So the prenatal serves as that insurance policy, especially helpful if you're in like food aversion stages and certain nutrient dense foods are just not going down well, like certain vegetables or meats or fish or something. But there's a wide variety of quality in prenatals on the market. So some are really not that high in nutrients or not that complete. So I won't name names, but there's like a popular brand that has like a cherry picked, just a handful of nutrients and it's a single little capsule and they leave out a number of micronutrients that are really essential. So I I don't know the rationale behind leaving things out. So you find some that are incomplete You find some that leave out nutrients like choline, right? It's too big, too many capsules, too expensive. Nobody's going to take like a 68 capsule prenatal per day or pay this much. And so they choose to leave it out knowing that they can sell more product without it in there. So some of the ones I like are full well, that's, you know, dietitian formulated. I like uh, seeking health's optimal prenatal. They have a couple different options. Some that are like uber complete and some that are just like the essential nutrients, Um, in lower amounts to keep the capsule count down. 
They have one in a chewable form. They have one that's built into a protein powder. Um, but those are ones that contain, you know, sufficient amounts of choline. They have folate in the proper form. They have B12 in a really bioavailable form. They have minerals and not in pixie dust amounts, but actual like usable amounts. Both of those also do not contain iron, which is actually my preference because not everybody needs an iron supplement. Um, I didn't need iron supplements either of my pregnancies. You could certainly meet that through food. Um, but if it's needed, you really do want to titrate your dose for, for your needs. And if you do need it, you might only need an iron supplement for a couple weeks or at, toward the end of pregnancy, but certainly not in the first trimester. It can actually be kind of inflammatory to just have a whole bunch of iron coming in that your body doesn't need or can't really utilize very well. So that's one that I like to leave separate. And then I usually like to um, add on nutrients as needed separately. And one would be like a DHA supplement. If you're not somebody who eats that 12 ounces or so of high omega-3 fish per week, you're probably coming up short on DHA. And so that could be a fish oil or a krill oil, or if, if you don't do animal foods, an algae-based DHA supplement, um, or even a cod liver oil, as long as you're just watching your total vitamin A intake, um, those would all be options there. So you can kind of add on things, but I look at the prenatal mostly just for vitamins and minerals specifically, and then you can add on extra on top of that as needed. I love all that advice and info you gave them. And I love that you touched upon minerals because I was looking at some prenatals the other day and I was surprised they didn't have minerals in them. I was like, minerals yeah. are so important for a pregnant mom, especially because the baby uses so many of those minerals to form their body. And so I was yes. really shocked. I was like, wow. So thank you for sharing all that information. I actually am going to move on to a new topic about prenatal um, nutrition cravings. So I know when I, each pregnancy, it seemed like I craved something else. So is it a wise tale that you crave what the baby needs or is that really true? I think cravings can sometimes be that good examples are like, it's, it's a known phenomenon that craving ice or wanting to chew on ice is related to anemia um, same with pica or pica, where people are eating non-food items. It's often a mineral deficiency. So their body is somehow seeking minerals from things like clay or dirt um, that they're eating. I do find salty foods being a craving is often just a sign the person's not getting enough salt. So that's another one to add to the myth category. You actually need more salt during pregnancy. And so if you're craving salty foods, certainly don't um, don't pull back on those. I do think though, depending on the item that you're craving, sometimes cravings are just a sign that your nutrient intake might be imbalanced or that whatever you're craving is a really cleverly designed ultra processed food where the food companies have put in that perfect combination of fat, salt, and sugar, or put in a bunch of flavor chemicals that make you want to eat the whole container. Like that is a phenomenon and the food companies do do this right. <laughs> on purpose. So if you're finding you're craving a burger, something that's like a whole food, um, I know people look at burgers as being a processed food, but like, you know, say on a good quality bun and, you know, meat, right. a craving for meat as a whole, I guess I should say, instead of burgers specifically, that very well could be a sign that you need more protein, more minerals, 
more iron, more fat in your diet, who knows? Um, that would be something I would be happy to lean into. If your craving is for flame and hot Cheetos, no. that very well could be a salt craving. It's oh, true. possible. You could be potentially under eating. You could be um, eating imbalanced meals, leading to crazy blood sugar swings, making you want something like starchy that's going to spike your blood sugar right away. I wouldn't call that a craving more so than it's like a physiological response to blood sugar imbalances. But I would be looking at that a little more critically, like giving into that craving, not that I'm saying giving into a craving is a bad thing, but like if you're habitually eating lots and lots of flaming Hot Cheetos, they're simply not a very nutrient dense food. So could you find something that fills that void for you without the like red dye number 40 or whatever? So what is it about the flaming Hot Cheetos that sound really good to you? Is it the crunchiness, the saltiness, the spiciness? Like maybe you can get some good quality, you know, organic corn chips or plantain chips with a spicy salsa or a spicy guacamole. And that fills that need while still providing you with nutrients. Maybe you look back and realize, you know, my breakfast was really imbalanced. I didn't get enough protein and I've been having crazy like roller coaster of like low energy and wanting sweet foods or snacky foods all day long. And it's not really the flaming hot Cheetos. It's like, you need your blood sugar to come back up. That's something where like, whether you have the hot Cheetos or not, the next day you can be more mindful at your breakfast. Like, okay, I know if I don't actually sit down and eat a proper breakfast, it's going to be a disaster later today. So let me make myself some eggs and then see how it goes. So my answer is it depends. I love that. I know sometimes I crave salty stuff. Some pregnancies I craved meat. And one pregnancy, I actually craved strawberries the entire time. I was like, what is in strawberries that I am needing? I just wanted those every day. So how interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, talking about um, low blood sugar or these blood sugar swings that you were just talking about, I know on your site, you teach about lower carb diets when pregnant. So is this why? That's a major reason. So for me, ultimately, this stems from my work with clients with gestational diabetes. The guidelines are very high in carbohydrates, you know, 45 to 65% of your calories come from carbohydrates. With gestational diabetes specifically, they're recommending you don't go any lower than 175 grams of carbohydrates. So when people are defining low carb diets, definitions do matter. When yes, I'm talking low carb, I'm talking less than 175 grams because that is the arbitrary minimum level that's set. And in fact, my whole first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, has an entire chapter going through why those recommendations are not actually evidence-based and, and the reasons why it is safer to go lower. A big part of that, yes, is, is blood sugar concerns. Gestational diabetes is by far the most common pregnancy complication. And up to 18% of pregnancies are complicated by gestational diabetes, which is high blood sugar. It can also translate as carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy, meaning your body is not able to tolerate large amounts of carbohydrates at a single sitting without experiencing higher than average blood sugar afterwards. And this can have many negative carryover effects, both on you and on your baby as well. Ultimately, what I've found is not only does this 
slightly lower carb way of eating. I, I call it moderately low carb because I don't want to get mixed up with the group that shuns all carbohydrates in all forms, that shuns all vegetables and all fruits and won't even allow a piece of bread or a side of right. chips or they're counting their carbs in kale, right? Um, I don't want to get like mixed up in that too much, but a moderately lower carbohydrate diet actually better meets the micronutrient requirements of pregnancy. For the most part, just takes out a lot of these foods that are filler foods. Like I already said, 58% of the average calories in an American's diet are from ultra processed foods. And most of those are in the form of added sugars or refined carbohydrates. So white flour products, white bread, white pasta, cereals, and then added sugar products. If you're naturally not going to be eating 58% of your calories from those foods, you clear up all this other room for nutrient dense foods. And so there are actually research studies showing that if your diet comes from better quality carbohydrates, your fruits and vegetables, um, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, and whatnot, your micronutrient intake is significantly better. Overall, because some of these foods are like, you know, higher in fiber or they're less concentrated in carbohydrates, naturally the diet ends up lower in carbohydrates than when you're eating 58% ultra processed foods. So yes, I do recommend a, a moderately lower carb diet. I don't think everybody needs to necessarily eat lower carb, but there is a significant percentage of the population, you know, 49 to 52% of Americans have either diabetes or prediabetes, which indicates a, a difficulty in blood sugar management. Blood sugar is mostly spiked by carbohydrates. And those people really do benefit from at least a moderately lower carbohydrate diet. Doesn't have to be ridiculously low. It really depends. Like check your blood sugar and titrate to, to where your blood sugar comes out in a good range. We also have, you know, women coming into pregnancy who are uh, very underweight or have struggled with hypothalamic amenorrhea or eating disorders. Um, they actually benefit from more food and that would include more carbohydrates as well. Um, so there's, there's room to kind of pick <laughs> where you're at. Um, but to say that low carb is never safe in pregnancy under any circumstances is the, the biggest thing that I uh, disagree with and a big misconception that I, I try to explain in my work. As you're talking, I'm like, this is just how we should all eat, whether you're pregnant or not. You know, you're just talking about getting good food sources, your fruits, your vegetables, but also your proteins and your good fats. So really yep. it's whether you're pregnant or not, this is how we should be eating. But I do have a question about gestational diabetes. So if you eat this lower carb way, the first part of your pregnancy, can you avoid gestational diabetes or is it unavoidable for some? There are a number of risk factors for gestational diabetes, some of which are in your control and some of which are not like heredity, for example, <laughs> not in your control. There's not anything you could do about that. If your mom had gestational diabetes during her pregnancy with you, not anything you could do about that, but there have been studies showing that lowering intake of refined carbohydrates, especially can, uh, is associated with a lower risk of gestational diabetes later in pregnancy sufficient vitamin D, magnesium, inositol supplementation, 
a number of different like, sufficient salt intake. That's an odd one for people, but that helps with, with managing your insulin levels and your insulin sensitivity. Um, sufficient protein intake. That's a big one. They've shown that having sufficient amount of protein helps the pancreas adapt in preparation for all the changes that it goes through in later pregnancy, because your body is going to be tasked with whether gestational diabetic or not pumping out like two or three fold more insulin than it normally does. And it needs protein, especially tryptophan to prepare for that to happen. Those are all things that are within your control. Uh, exercise as well. Women who exercise more have upwards of like a 79% lower risk of gestational diabetes and later pregnancy. So yes, overall, I would say certainly eating this way stacks the deck in your favor. Is it a perfect guaranteed? You're definitely not going to have gestational diabetes or another pregnancy complication. No, because if we had that information, then that would be the guidelines. Right? Right. That, that would be what everybody would do. Right. Sometimes you do everything right. And still there's something that just simply isn't within your control. However, what I will say is that regardless of the diagnosis, the intervention is actually the same, the same stuff we're talking about here, which is balancing your meals, sufficient amounts of protein, keeping carbs as a sort of smaller component of your meals, almost like a condiment, a take it or leave it thing, having lots of vegetables, especially, you know, your green vegetables at your meals that naturally leads to really great post-meal blood sugar levels for everybody diabetic or not. And that interestingly is the same intervention if you happen to get a positive diagnosis. So it, it doesn't have to be a negative thing necessarily to have the diagnosis. Like some, some people it's just pregnancy is like a stress test on your body. And so there might be something underlying going on. There could be some underlying insulin resistance that you didn't know about. Maybe your pancreas, like genetically or however it developed in utero, doesn't have the capacity to produce as much insulin. Like I have a friend who's mm-hmm. very healthy, but her mom is type one diabetic and with not the best of blood sugar control during her pregnancy. And despite this friend being very healthy, very fit, eating pretty well, she had gestational diabetes, both of her pregnancies. And it likely was a matter of her, how her pancreas developed in utero, like that carries over for the rest of your life, right? (laughs) This is why we try to do all this stuff about good blood sugar management um, during pregnancies now. So hopefully you can help your children in the future, but that's a risk factor that wasn't in her control, right? So you do the best that you can um, with, with the cards you're, you're dealt. Oh, I love all of that information. I have loved talking with you. And I, like I said earlier, I have so many young moms, moms that are still getting pregnant. Um, And so I know this information has been so useful to them. So thank you so much for being here on the show and telling um, my listeners all this info. But is there any last like advice or tips that you would want to give these pregnant women, soon to be pregnant women? Gosh, um, don't, don't overthink it too much and don't be too hard on yourself. Um, I get this question a lot, you know, I, I didn't know all this information before, or is it too late for me to make a change now? There's never a bad time to in- include, start including more whole foods and real foods into your diet. Um, and we're always going to be doing the best with the information that we're given. So certainly for my first pregnancy, 
although I thought I was eating pretty well, I didn't know, like the new research on choline hadn't come out yet. If I had known, I probably would have been more diligent about getting more of that or supplementing more of that, right? There's, there's always new information coming out. But the reassuring part is the more that your diet is built on some of these foundations of sufficient proteins, sufficient vegetables, like not overdoing the refined carbs, things like that, healthier fats, the less that new research is actually going to majorly impact what, what you're doing. Like the new information I learned about certain amino acids that I didn't know before, like, oh man, I wish I'd known that before. Well, it actually doesn't really matter because since I was eating an omnivorous diet with a variety of protein sources, I was still getting some of that amino acid down the hatch, right? right. So I'm sure your listeners who are already familiar with all of your work they may not need to make any major changes um, to their diet in terms of preparing for pregnancy or even during pregnancy, other than really, you know, listening to your body and prioritizing nutrient dense foods whenever you can. I love that advice because with my first two kids, I actually didn't know much about nutrition at all. And sometimes I think back like, oh my goodness, what was I eating during those pregnancies? But I've realized you can't fret about the past. All you can do is once you know better, you do better. And so exactly. that's all we can do. So thank you for giving that advice. Will you just tell my listeners about your two books and where they can find them? Sure. So I have uh, two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Um, you can find them many places. Of course, Amazon is the easiest for most people. Um, I also do have a bookshop where I sell online, where I sell Real Food for Pregnancy, um, paperback and ebook, and also an e-cookbook if you want to uh, buy direct. And you can find my work on my website at lilynicholsrdn.com. That'll link out to all those all the places to buy the books. There's a tab for books that makes it very easy to find. I have, you know, 250 blog posts up there. I give away the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free and many other freebies. And uh, as far as social media, you can find me mostly on Instagram and my handle's the same as my website. So it's Lily Nichols RDN. And if you are a new mom, you want to get pregnant soon, you're going to be pregnant soon, follow her. She has so much free information and just so many good resources and things like that. So thank you for everything that you do on social media, on your website. You're a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. Um, I always end my show by asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient to life. What would you say it is? I would say... Rolling with the punches. <laughs> you can't really control everything in your life. And there's, you get thrown a lot of lemons, a lot of curveballs, a lot of bumps in the road, especially in, you know, pregnancy, birth, motherhood, breastfeeding, especially if we're going to be specific to those life phases. So just find a way to, you know, be lighthearted about the whole thing. You can't control everything. <laughs> And you just got to roll with it. Sometimes. So true. I love that advice because roll with the punches, especially I tell new moms this or soon to be moms. A lot of them will have these birth plans and then it goes nothing according to the birth plan. Or they have this idea for breastfeeding and it goes nothing along, you know, their thought of what they thought it was going to be like. So yes, new moms, especially just roll with the punches and we do the best <laughs> yep. that we can. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. And I know my listeners have learned a lot from you. So thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram. <laughs>